Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. In today's episode for The Den, I am joined by my colleague and dear friend of some other friends over the years of mine, Dr. Jim Austin, and I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his career and supporting criminal justice reform and changes. Jim, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, Jessica. Well, it's good to talk to you again. My career, well, it started uh, a ways ago. I actually, uh, when I left college, I got a job working in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And I worked at Stateville and Joliet Penitentiaries. They called them penitentiaries back then. And then they transitioned them into correctional institutions. My job there was to be both a correctional, what they call a caseworker or counselor. And then also they had a term called correctional sociologist. And I learned a lot about prisons. That was the important part. And I got interested in, in prisons and how they operate. I left there after about five years and then took a job with the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. And along the way, I got my advanced degrees and learned how to do research, which uh, helped me get into the business of looking at prisons from a so-called scientific point of view and developed a number of uh, interesting instruments or reforms they have to do with uh, prison classification systems evaluations of alternatives to incarceration, population projections. I left NCCD after about 20-some years and formed my own company, the JFA Institute. And today we are alive and well, and we do a lot of work, mostly with state and local correctional agencies solving problems that they have. Excellent. I know uh, since we at IED Analytics are also in the state and local uh, solving data problems, for folks that might be tuning in and might not be aware of just the vastness of correctional data, can you talk a little bit about some of the typical analyses that you do for corrections and how that's kind of supported some of the crime uh, crime reform changes? Yeah, basically, Usually uh, an agency will come to us with a problem. So the problem might be that they're overcrowded. They might have a high rate of violence. They may be sued by another uh, outside entity. And so it's generally a problem that has to be solved. And so what we do, we analyze the prison or the jail population from a number of perspectives. And we come up with the recommendations that will solve that problem. So a couple of examples real quickly. In Arizona, we were retained to deal with the issue that they had a segregation problem. They were segregating their prisoners by 
by race in terms of the programs and cell assignments. So they were being litigated. So our job was to fix that. And so we worked with the department to put in place a program that integrated the entire prison system over like a three to four year period. And that worked very well. I'm involved in a couple of consent decrees that have been going on forever and ever. (laughs) Uh, The federal courts will ask us to come in and try and figure out what is the problem here that needs to be resolved. Typically now, that's in the area of the use of what they call restricted housing. used to be called administrative segregation. Yeah. So we will put in place, you know, programs that are non-punitive, but also ensure that people that, you know, are committing acts of violence are being separated from the general population. And hopefully we get them in a better position so they can be released back to the general population. And then we do a lot of work in classification systems and risk assessment systems. So jail and prison systems have to have a way to classify people and house them appropriately. So we do that. In the courts, there's usually a pretrial release instrument that's being used. So we help design those and validate them so that they work effectively. Perfect. Thanks for that context. Uh, I always find that managing things within a facility is it's like a mini city and being able to kind of think through the challenges within the design of the facility as well as the you know population within that design for those. So you and I are connecting here after several months of probably almost a year since seeing each other, perhaps, or, or more at this point, given COVID and everything. Our colleague, Steve Rickman, asked us to get together to talk about this report that you released at the, at the fall of 2023 here on forecasting U.S. crime rates. This is a report that you did with our mutual colleague, Dr. Rick Rosenfeld. And unfortunately, we are recording this episode just shortly after Rick has passed on. So before we dig into the details of the report and the importance of this work for the criminal justice space right now, I wanted you to just kind of give some contributions to Rick, not just for this report, but his support in the criminal justice space. Well, Rick was just, he just had a tremendous impact on the field and the, in the areas of studying crime, crime rates, what causes them to go up and down. I didn't meet Rick until like maybe eight years ago, and we decided to collaborate on this project we'll discuss in a few few minutes. But he was just a dear, kind man who, uh, he was a scientist, and he looked at things from a scientific point of view and was always looking for those things, you know, that made sense from a scientific perspective. So he will be dearly missed by everyone in the field. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've had the opportunity to work with him over the years from a, a research space. And I agree that he's a, a scientist and really kind of leaning into how we should look at some of the problems here. So so you and Rick were able to collaborate for this report, which was supported by the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. And the report, there's actually a kind of total of four reports here, but basically the report is about forecasting U.S. crime rates and the impacts of imprisonment. So you did this generally from the 1960 to 2025, and then specifically for the cities of Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. So we'll be sure to link all of those reports and, and other things about the to the show notes here. However, I just wanted you to kind of give us some ideas of what what did you and Rick think about wanting to do this now and why was this so important to do this type of forecasting? 
Well, uh, kind of an interesting story on this whole topic. I was taking a flight cross country as I usually do. And this gentleman was sitting next to me and he had the Wall Street Journal. And I was just looking over at his shoulder and it had a graph of the inflation rate in the United States from 1960, I think back then it was like to 2015. And because I'm familiar with the crime rates in the United States, I looked at that and said, hmm, that looks just like the crime rate. So that got me into this idea of what is going on here that could have predicted a couple of things. And this, this is what I call the, the big miss in criminology and by criminologists. From 1930 to 1960, that's as long as we can go back and look at crime rates. Mm -hmm. uh, they were pretty stable. They didn't change very much over that you know 30-year period. And then starting in the early 1960s, they started to go up. And then they started to really go up. And they peaked about 1985 and stayed about at the same level for about a decade. And then they plummeted. And criminologists didn't see this. They didn't see the rise and they didn't see the fall. And I think, you know, that's a kind of a, not a good commentary on the field. If we as criminologists can't estimate what's going on in our society that would forecast crime rates. So Rick and I got together and let's try and see if we can predict, put a model to go that will predict or forecast, however you want to phrase it, future crime rates, because that would be of importance, if we think, for policymakers to understand what is really driving crime rates in this country. So that's what we did. We collected a whole bunch of information about the crime rates from 1980 uh, till the current, which is 2020, roughly when our first report came out. And through a couple of statistical models we came up with, we were able to kind of identify those factors that were strictly socially and statistically associated with crime rates changes, the change in those crime rates. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that the inflation rate or some of the things related to the overall economy for the city or for the country was definitely like an ind indicator for some of these changes. Yeah, well, there's in the report, we have these, we have two models. One is kind of like a key indicator model, which is, it's like a checkpoint kind of thing. Are these things moving in a certain direction? And we have like four sectors that we looked at. We have a demographic sector. We have an economic sector. We have a criminal justice sector. And these sectors that we're looking at are all statistically associated with changes in crime rates. So for example, on the demographic side, there's a very strong association between the age of the population in our society and crime rates. Not surprising, you know, as our population ages, as it has been, uh, crime rates have been going down. Mm -hmm. Related to that somewhat is what's called the fertility rate or the birth rate. And if you look at the birth rate in our society, it was increasing dramatically, which produced the baby boomers, which is when, when the baby boomers became of ages 15 and 16. And so crime rates started to go up. 
fertility rates have dropped. Highest rate of population, or that's the highest grouping in our population, right? Right. So that's the oldest, that's that's the biggest group. And now they're the oldest group. So that transition has helped dampen crime rates. Uh, But if you if you lag birth rates by about 20 years. So when if women start having children at a higher rate, then they will hit their peak crime age in about 20 years. Mm-hmm. So if that fertility rate changes and you lag it by that 20 years, you'll see a very strong association with the crime rate. And the other point I, I, I raise here is juvenile arrests, which is also related to these demographic factors. So juvenile arrests have plummeted in our society. And that's important because the best predictor of adult criminality is were you arrested as a juvenile? So if we have fewer juveniles being arrested, then that means we're producing cohorts of juveniles that don't have that arrest history, and therefore they're less likely to become involved in criminal conduct when they hit adulthood. I got stuck on this part, Jen. And I was like, I I know he's going to help me understand this because because you have done so much in the correctional space and you constantly, you know, kind of heard the argument of, well, if we don't arrest them and keep them in in jail for a long period of time, we're going to have high crime. And that, that the only thing that kind of helps us have low crime is this kind of certainty and severity of punishment. Right. That's the kind of age old thought process. And so the juvenile arrest rate, why it's been decreasing, right? A lot of juvenile reform or diversion for juveniles has happened. And so I'm just curious to, from your perspective, what some of that looks like or contributes to this. Well, I, I should have mentioned this, this other sector. I mentioned three of the four, which was demographic and economic and criminal justice. There's a fourth sector, which is called the household sector. Yes, and that we measured that in terms of how many households had people under 18 and then the total size of the household. So if we have lower fertility rates, which means if women choose to have a child, they typically now will have one, maybe two children. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents had four. And that's pretty typical, the baby boomer. So we've kind of splashed the household size by 50%. There's some argument that now because we have small, smaller households, they're being raised better than when they were before. There's more control going on, there's more attention in, in that regard. And that is producing juveniles who are less likely to get arrested. So it's a less criminal inclined kind of cohort coming out into our society. So that's the, the juvenile diversion stuff is a different issue. That was, you know, we're trying to divert youth from the from the juvenile justice system. And that did happen. And that yeah. was, you know, successful. And we've also, we, we've reduced, you know, like the status offenses. We don't arrest now youth for status offenses. So all of that has been positive. All this stuff kind of comes together. So like, it's like a big gumbo I'm kind of describing for all these factors pushing toward lower crime rates that would start happening about 1995. And that's exactly what did happen. Crime rates started to go down when all these factors started uh, coalescing uh, with each other. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's the, like the 
the criminal justice and the economic sector, the kind of last two sectors is is where my brain always goes around, not just because I'm a criminologist, but also just because of the economy of our country or even particular areas of the country seem right. to be, you know, the things I think, you know, most of your sociologists and criminologists have always said that, you know, strain and other rational choice theories or various other research says that there's a lot of socioeconomic factors that contribute to crime rates in different areas, whether that's from a disadvantaged standpoint or various other kind of economies, illicit economies that might be happening. And so, you know, when I look at at the table on the projected direction and stuff, I, th- I thought it was really interesting to see that you know, the more that we have, and let me know if I'm reading this wrong, is that if we have a lower percent in poverty, obviously we have a lower crime rate. Right. But if we have a higher rate of inflation or long-term interest rates, which are factors that are controlled by the economists, right, have have no factor whatsoever, that we kind of see that increase of crime, the more exactly. that the, the economy has that. And it kind of like the proof in the pudding for us was, you know, interest rates got lower, lower, and lower until COVID-19 hit. And about, I think, 2021, 22, that's when the interest rates started to spike up to 8%. They went from like almost 0% to 8%. So to us, it's not surprising we have an uptick in crime in 2022. And that's when you saw a lot of this, the headlines being, you know, murders are up, violent crime is up. And it's true, they were up. But why why were they up? And one part certainly was the higher inflation rate. Now, if you look at the FBI data, 2023, year to date, that's the latest they they put out there, you'll see a significant drop in crimes in 2023. So when they published in 2023, we should see that drop, which is consistent with the drop in the inflation rate, which is also a drop. I don't, I want to caution people, we cannot estimate very precisely year to year changes. So these are kind of like macro level kinds of changes that influence the crime rate. So, and the fact on the inflation rate and the long-term interest rate, that has to do with the theory of social stress. Goods become more expensive, like your basic food and gas and rents, that is more expensive. That's put economic stress on households and people. And some people respond to that stress inappropriately. When I was looking at over the report, both, you know, for just general in the United States, as well as the specific cities, I think I was kind of oftentimes we think about that economic stress just means there's more property crime. Yeah, not the case. Yeah. yeah. And that's not the case at all. As someone who works with a lot of police departments and hears the, you know, oh, our violent crime is being committed by juveniles or all these property crimes that we perhaps haven't paid a lot of attention to that's now getting out of hand with these organized thefts and things of that nature and kind of brashness of, you know, snatch and grabs and things of that nature that regardless of whether it's juveniles or adults, is that I interpreted the potential model here is that we're going to continue to see property crime increasing quite significantly for the next couple of years. Would that be accurate for you? No. (laughs) (laughs) If the inflation rate goes down, okay, first of all, Inflation does have some impact on property crime, too. But there, there are two kind of really what we call external shocks to the system that kind of interrupted the long-term decline in the crime rates. And that was uh, the inflation rate, but also COVID-19. 
Mm-hmm. And COVID-19 interrupted a lot of things that I think affect people that are related to criminal activity. So we would probably say there was an uptick in 2022, 21, 22. And then in 2023, you're going to see declines. And then there's one exception, which makes our model, you know, we can't predict everything. But the one exception is motor vehicle theft, which oh, is yeah. really gone up. It's kind of like on its own little track. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. In several of our cities, we see that that's the difference there. Yeah. I had one person say it's because of the TikTok videos <laughs> that were showing how to yeah. break in certain cars, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think we've heard that from almost every city we've been in as well as that it's the, yeah, it's, you know, TikTok that's, and I, I just want to make sure because I, this, as you were talking, I was like flipping through, it was the Los Angeles one that shows that the property crime is increasing. Everybody else is going kind of down. Yeah, yeah. And again, what we wanted to do was model this for cities because we thought mm-hmm. that would be of interest. So we, so, because each city has a little different pattern to it in terms of its trend line and the factors we're looking at, you'll get different results. Like I've got one of the cities I looked at recently is, is Oakland. And Oakland is going up. It's not, it doesn't look like the rest of California. So what's going on there is kind of a puzzlement. Uh, I was in Charlotte the other day in Charlotte. Every crime was going down except for motor vehicle theft, which yeah. which had doubled. So I can't give, you know, forecasting is, is not exactly exact. It can give you some major trends. It's almost like it's like the stock market kind of stuff. You know, you can look at major economic trends and say, this is where we think the market is going. So I, I think if you just kind of take that perspective this analysis is useful to policymakers so that they understand, you know, there are some pretty big factors out there that have a lot to do with crime rates. We will certainly never see for a long, long time, unless there's some unbelievable change that we can't even fathom of going back to the crime rates of the late 1980s and early 1990s. We are so far below that now. Yeah. And we've got these basic parameters in place. In particular, the fertility rate is a big one. So that's that's something that's not going to change. And then, and when it does change, it takes you know 15, 20 years for it to show its impact. So there are some factors that are not very dynamic. They're baked into the into the formula, and they're going to be that way. So we're really talking about fluctuations now in an era of lower crime rates. I'm wondering, Jim, if you guys thought about, right, or what other factors that you thought about in this process? And and I I, I don't even know that I would know how to do this from a national level, but in specific cities that might have a higher rate of that kind of middle population, right? A higher percentage of that potential, both juvenile and young adult. Do you think like there's this higher risk or higher likelihood just because of, you know, there's more kind of middle-aged individuals for that city versus another city that might be more either new and and new families and kind of developing versus a retirement community or the average population is a little bit older? Yeah. So you, you can have cities that have a very different demographic portfolio in terms of uh, the composition by age. I was 
thinking also that there's there's other things that are criminal justice related. So I'm sure you've seen there are police departments that are underfunded, that they don't have a sufficient number of officers on patrol, or they're not using certain approaches. I'll say that there's, we, we looked at, I think we looked at over 50 variables. One of them was the number of police per capita. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it is true. This is where you get into, you know, associations and correlations, which is not causation. It is true that we started adding after uh, the Violent Offender Act, 1994, we added a lot of police officers to uh, the streets. And it is also true that after we were doing that, crime rates did start going down. When you get into some kind of statistical analysis, you're looking for those factors that are independently associated, taking into account other factors. So police per capita, if you just look at it as a simple correlation, you'll see some relationship, but it doesn't sustain itself to explain the complete drop that we saw in the crime rate. So that factor is not there. But if I was a local politician, I'd be looking at my police department and making sure, you know, that, you know, response times are appropriate, clearance rates look good as best they can be. Those are things that are important in terms of having some impact. But in terms of if you were to say, I'm going to add 50 police officers to my department, is that by itself going to do it? No, it's not going to do it. It's, it's going to be these other factors that are going to be driving that crime rate in the future. Yeah, that's been one of the interesting conversations with the other panelists of the DEN is that in rethinking, like, what does police need in the future or even today, right? And we hear it all the time as we travel and work with these agencies is that we just need more bodies. We need more people because we're down so many officers or we, because retirements or combination of retirements and recruitment and various other changes that we just don't have the numbers that we used to have. And the belief system is that what you just said, right, in the 90s when we hired and and increased some of that staffing, that that was exactly why crime went down, because we had enough bodies. And it's been really hard to kind of break that mindset across folks, is that the number of police officers may or may not actually have any kind of impact on some of those things. But their performance on the job would be potentially impactful. But as you know, I mean, police work, it's not like on TV. A lot of this calls for service. Ninety-six <laughs> percent of them are not criminal events. <laughs> they're not criminal events. So they're out there helping people in in situations that are not criminally related. So, I mean, it's good to have that service, but, yeah. but I don't think we should be promising that this is going to solve our crime problem. So you mentioned like some of the things that policy folks should be thinking about, and that you've been looking at this in specific cities. Do you think something like this actually kind of helps them think of like, hey, if we're if we're going to be seeing an increase or a decrease, does that like what types of policy decisions should they be thinking differently about? Well, an important thing is the, is the message they're giving to their citizenry. So again, I mentioned crime rates have dropped dramatically, you know, since the 1990s, and they're going to stay low. I think it's it's, it's important for people, citizens, to know that that we are in much better shape than we were, you know, 20 years ago. And that the so-called uptick in crime is really not, I mean, it's it's bad to be a victim. I've been a victim of crime. 
you know, so I know it's not a pleasant thing to go through and it's not to diminish that, but it's really not that big of an increase if you look at it historically. And secondly, it's likely to continue to start either go down slightly, I would say slightly, and then stay at where it's been prior to 1960. The rates that it was prior to 1960 was about 2,000 per 100,000. We're headed in that direction again, and we'll probably stay there. So that's that's the good news. And so don't overreact to these, I won't call them anecdotal, because not anecdotal, they're real situations, but don't be driven by sensational events in terms of you know changing your policies. I do a lot of work, as you know, with jails and prison systems. And we just have so much evidence now, places like New York, state of New York, state of California, Illinois. Those are three states that I'm familiar with that have just significantly reduced their prison populations. And as they did it, the crime rate was dropping. And the reason why that's possible is that if you look at prison populations in particular, what really drives them post-1994, why they went up so high, was what we call the length of stay, how long they were staying. Right. And here again, we have a lot of research that shows whether someone does 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, 48 months, you'll get the same recidivism rate. So it's like forcing people all of a sudden, instead of doing four years in college, you got to do eight years in college. <laughs> Some people gonna... would definitely drop out a little bit quicker. Yeah, well, <laughs> but you know, your tuition costs go up, right? Quite a right. bit. Right. So, But you're not smarter. That's so, true. <laughs> you're just in there longer. <laughs> you're just in there longer. So that's kind of like the thing that people need to pay attention to. The other thing that I want to mention, we've been looking at, this issue of case processing in the courts, which affects local jails a lot, and ways to, you know, without diminishing the quality of, of your defense, finding ways to get the courts to be more efficient in the disposition of their criminal charges. And if, if that can be done, that would have a really positive impact on jail populations. So th there are things that are policy driven that don't impact the crime rate. And I think it's important for policymakers to seize those ones that they know, okay, if we did this or this, it's not gonna make our society or our communities less safer. And maybe we can recoup some money, you know, and reinvest it in those communities. As you know, there are certain communities that are suffering from high crime rates. And those are the ones we need to try and figure out how to make them safer. Yeah. Some of the early conversations with Rodney and Harold and Steve were exactly on this of like, what's the likelihood that the policymaker or the police chief is going to take the stance to say, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z, right? Because that doesn't, they choose not to respond to these sensationalized or these kind of cir immediate circumstances that everybody has up in arms and they're going to they're going to play the long game right and keep their folks kind of on, on strategic deployments or strategic distribution of resources because everything else is will ebb and flow and and do the policymakers or the police chief really have the the gumption to do that or will will they just get fired like, do they have the ability to actually take that stance or not? 
I don't know if you have any opinions on. Well, that's really good advice. I mean, I, I, I used to do these, uh, I guess, appearances before state legislators. <laughs> and I said, here's the first thing I want you to do. Nothing. Don't do anything. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, don't, don't aggravate the system. Probably like, who is this guy? Who brought him in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're saying, what? what? We're supposed to do something. We're supposed to react. Yeah, yeah everyone feels like they have to have something. Yeah. yeah. And I'm trained as a sociologist. So sociologists are trained kind of look at the big picture. And again, these macro level forces that influence our behavior. And it, they kind of teaches you that quick interventions no matter how well intended, just have diminishing returns. It's just the facts, you know? So, I mean, like for example, our recidivism rate, it hasn't moved for, since they started first recording it nationally since 1983, exactly what it's been. So why is that? You know, we've, we've increased the prison population. Like when I started corrections in Illinois, we had uh, a total of 7,000 people locked up. And about 30 years later, it's up to 45,000. Oh, man. And I'm getting the same recidivism rate. I'm not getting any impact. So it kind of, if you're an investor in that stock, you'd say, hmm, I'm not getting much of a return in that portfolio. Right. So it, it's an educational process, you know, that politicians need to understand. They have to lead. Because, you know, the public pays attention to them and what they say. Yeah. And I, I find it in the in the policing space, like where police officers are trained, like they have to react. They have to have a response. They mm -hmm. have they to do. do something like it, it is part of their DNA, their like vibration of performance. And so like when you go in there and you say, don't do anything differently, mm -hmm. just stay the same way. They're going to be like, but that's, you know, we're. They're de definitely going to think I'm crazy if that's what I say. So you mentioned something earlier about the the length of stay, and that just r reminded me of a project that we worked on years ago for Nevada, right, of, of seeing that some of their policy changes actually cost them money or strains on the population because they changed some of their legislation and sentencing for, mm -hmm. for people to stay longer. Right. And that just got me thinking about, right, like this whole forecasting is that right? Like if you if you do start to make changes and it well, I guess that would be the interesting experiment. If you didn't do anything and it still goes down, and you start to make changes and it still goes down, then what is the incentive for folks to change? Because in your world and in my world, people change because there's a problem and there's a pain point. So, what if there's no pain going forward? How to what what does that mean? To me, it's. You know, our policymakers need to, maybe we can give them some classes in research methods. So, because <laughs> <laughs> I've got a state, I won't mention it, but it passed very serious legislation that increased the length of stay. And they did that, I think it was about 1994, 95. And they passed it and the crime rate went down. So they said, see? I said, okay. Here's three states that didn't pass it. <laughs> and their and crime their rate populations went down too. And their crime rates went down as fast or faster than yours. So that's, I guess, a lack of critical thinking about what is really causing what to happen. So how, how could you possibly have three other states 
that lowered their prison population while you're increasing it and their crime rate's going down at the same rate that yours is. How is that possible under your theory? That, that's not possible, right? Your theory would say if you lower your prison population, crime rates have to go up. And that's that just yeah, didn't happen. I don't think we've ever seen that happen. That's not, no, no. yeah. Crime rates dropped across the board, no matter what the state, the city was, they all dropped, whether you were, whatever you were doing, crime rates were going down. And the only thing that can explain that are factors that are not related to criminal justice, because uh, the criminal justice factors are all over the map. They're doing all sorts of things. But we get this same pattern, state after state, city after city, community after community. And so there's only one thing in my mind from a research point, it's gotta be something other than criminal justice policy that's causing that. Yeah, I think this is where we constantly see like crime is the outcome, not the forefront or not part of the equation in that aspect. So it's all the other things like education, economics, job or access to work and, and jobs. So, well, Jim, any lasting words of uh, wisdom on the report and things that you'd like people to take pay attention to when they think about this? I think the country's moving in the right direction right now, slowly but surely. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that crime rates have, have dropped. I think, you know, our our estimates that it's going to continue to stay low, certainly stay low. They're going to drop this year and they may drop again, depending on that inflation rate factor. I can't predict that. And uh, I just think, you know, we're headed to a better space with respect of understanding what makes us all safer and implementing policies. Again, there are things within criminal justice that are very important that need to be done. But there's external things outside of criminal justice that also need to be done that will have uh, a pretty big impact on how safe we are. Yeah, definitely. Well, I thank you so much for coming uh, and talking about this and always like to hear your perspective on these things. I think one of the folks I tell this to Steve all the time of, you know, right, like being able to remember something more than just the last three to five years, which is, you know, sometimes where even in some of the data analysis we do, right, is that we look back three to five years. And so being able to look back 30 years or 50 years to kind of see what the overall trends are to kind of give a little bit more context is always helpful. Well, history is important. So thank you, Jessica, so much. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.